Tēnā koutou, no mai, haida mai. Good morning and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. This morning we are broadcasting a special programme from Washington DC. For the last four years, a New Zealander has held one of the most senior positions in the White House. As a direct advisor to Donald Trump, Chris Liddell has been considered by some as one of the most influential New Zealanders in the world. But in all that time, he has never done an interview. Today, in what is an extraordinary moment in US politics, we're with him in the West Wing of the White House. From Matamata to the West Wing, this is Chris Liddell's office. And so far, this is the peak of his high-flying professional career. From his education at Auckland and Oxford universities, he became the CEO of Carterholt Harvey and the director of the New Zealand Rugby Union. But his career really took off in the United States. Liddell became the chief financial officer for Microsoft before leading General Motors after the 2008 financial crash to what was then the biggest IPO in history. In 2012, Liddell worked on the unsuccessful presidential campaign for Republican Mitt Romney. We dream, we can do better. And in 2017, he was appointed to the White House, reporting directly to President Donald Trump. It is extremely uncommon for dual citizens to be in this position, but after four years in the West Wing... The US is pleased to nominate Chris Liddell as the Secretary General of the OECD. I've known Chris now for a long time. He'll do an outstanding job working with other free market democracies to develop best practices and standards that drive growth and create jobs. The Trump administration announced Chris Liddell as America's candidate to become the next Secretary General of the OECD. Now, I have been hoping to bring you this interview for some time, and I've met with Chris Liddell in the West Wing on multiple occasions. Of course, Donald Trump is alleging large-scale election fraud. And given the sensitivity of the moment, we agreed on strict parameters for the interview. There are some subjects Chris Liddell simply will not comment on. That being said, he does address several of the controversies from his time in office. So, I joined him in the Roosevelt Room in the West Wing of the White House, and I began by asking him to explain his job. Okay, so I'm Deputy Chief of Staff at the White House. So typically in a, in a White House you have the Chief of Staff and then you have two deputies. One of the deputies runs operations, so that person runs the President's day-to-day -day schedule, uh, the Secret Service, Air Force One, all the logistics of looking after the President. The other Deputy Chief uh, typically runs policy, so that's my job, so it's policy coordination. So in, in simple terms, it's to come up with policy options for the President to consider. So I typically have a, a daily meeting with the President on policy. In order to come up with the options for him, I run a process where I have what's called principles committees meetings. Principles are heads of agencies like HHS or state and heads of components of the White House here, like the National Economic Council. So I, I would run a meeting for that that would come up with options that would take to the president. And I'd also run the process that sort of leads up to those principal committees. So if you like, I'm a train conductor. I make sure that we have the right topics for the president to consider and put options in front of him. Why did you take this job? <laughs> I. Um, really wanted to challenge myself against the best in the world and I wanted to make, see if I could make a difference. And this is the biggest and most difficult job in the world. Um, I actually think my job is the best job in the White House, but it's also one of the most difficult. So I wanted to challenge myself. And I'll ask you about those challenges in a minute, but talk to me a little bit about your interactions with the President. You meet with the President daily. 
what is President Donald Trump like? In terms of policy time, what he really likes is, is vibrant conversation. So typically our meetings on policy will have four, five, six principles and they will represent different views depending on the topic. And what he really likes and engages with is debate. So we'll be in the Oval Office, which is just over there, uh, and he'll sit four, five, six people around his uh, desk and we'll debate the topic. So my job is to set that up and make sure we have the right people there and have the flow. But he, he, he loves and engages in debate, in particular vigorous debate. He loves people to come in with strong opinions. He likes different opinions and he really wants to push people and understand different perspectives. Do you like them? I, I really enjoy the interactions, yeah. I think it's uh, the most stimulating part of my day is the interaction I have with him and I like, he, he's tough and he pushes me and he pushes everyone else around there but at the same time he's, he asks my opinion, he you know, is respectful of it and so I, I love the time that I have with him. Is he a details man? No, he's big picture, uh, the details of my job so, and the other people around the table. So he really wants to understand the big picture, he wants to make a decision and he wants to do it on the basis of the personality, the input. So all of the staff work is what happens leading up to that meeting with the president. In a sense, you are a referee. You, you bring contenders and different ideas to the president, you present them, and then he makes a decision. Yeah, I'd, I'd describe it as honest broker. So, and, and part of my role and part of the reason why I've been reasonably successful is people trust me they trust me to represent their opinions in front of the president. And the president trusts me to make sure that the right opinions are in front of him as well. So it's critical, obviously, that he hears different perspectives. It's critical that the work is done properly. And it's critical from the people around here because this is a challenging environment. People like to try and get around the process and get to the president. And the only way the process can actually run well is if people trust that it's going to work for them. And that's my job. So. Honest broker, I need to make sure that even though the conflicting views around the table, those views are aired. And it's also incredibly important that people trust that my opinion is not going to weigh out theirs. So my opinion is the least relevant in the room. My job is to make sure that everyone's opinion is in front of the president. I think, uh, in the eyes of some, the president. Um has a certain type of character that distinguishes him from different presidents. What has been your experience of perhaps the, the president's more colourful personality attributes? Well, look, I, un I understand that the president's unpopular, in particular in New Zealand. Um, and, you know, the, I, I accept that as part of the job. Uh, but I also accept that my job is to do something important. And this is a blood sport, and if you're not willing to sort of take a few punches, then you know you shouldn't be here. But in terms of dealing with the president, I've actually found that incredibly refreshing and not easy because he's difficult, but he, he, he's hard and he's challenging and he looks you directly in the eye and he makes sure that if you have an opinion and you have a view, that it's solid. And I really enjoy that interaction. So. Uh, my interactions internally with him and with other people have been really enjoyable. 
So, you know, I can only talk to the mechanics of what it's here. The outside world makes its own views. So you say he, it is refreshing to work with the president, but he can be difficult as well. Sure. You know, every president is. They wouldn't be president of the United States unless they were challenging, difficult. Now, everyone's personality is slightly different. But one of the things people really like about the president in the outside world, and obviously, you know, we can talk a little bit about the election, but you know, he's fearless. He challenges the status quo. He delivers on his promises. I, I enjoy that aspect of him. And in terms of uh, what I said, why am I here? I, I want to be challenged. I want to be in the most difficult situations. I want to throw myself into that and see whether I can rise to the occasion. And there's no you know, bigger and more difficult thing than walking into the Oval Office and having to come up with a decision on a difficult topic. You are, I think, the longest serving senior administration official. Why have you survived? <laughs> yeah, so I've been here since day one. Uh, so uh, I'd say three things. Um, one, immodestly, I'm extremely good at what I do. And so delivering on uh, the president's options and everything is part of my job. So this will be one of the most productive White Houses that ever had, despite all the noise on the outside. We'll have something like 500 executive orders or presidential memorandum by the time we're finished here. That's about two or three a week. Um, that's more than any other administration has. So I describe sort of my job and my role as being the submarine under the surface. It just keeps pulling on. When all the waves and storms are above the water, below the surface, we just get on with things. And so the actual amount of productive policy that's gone on has been phenomenal. A lot of it has doesn't make the headlines, but so what? So um, that's number one. Number one, I, I just do a good job, and I'm good at what I do. Um, number two, I mentioned before, people trust me. So unlike you know a lot of politicians or people who work in politics, I do what I say, um, I, I say what I'm going to do, I don't stab people in the back, I tell them to their face what I'm going to do, and it's good New Zealand values, if I can say that. Um, I'm just, I am who I am, and people accept that, and I think they like me for the fact that I'm refreshingly open and do what I say. So in terms of trust, and the other big thing is, it's not about me. You know, my job is important, I'm not. The team's result is more important than mine. And that's not just hollow words, that's the way mm. I actually operate. So what is critically important is the president makes the right decision or the most informed decision. And so it's not about my agenda. And a lot of people come into the White House because they have a personal agenda. They want, you know, this is their opportunity of a lifetime to get their particular pet project across the line. I don't have that. For me, it's I want to be that honest broker. I want people to trust me. And I actually just want to get to the right result. So people like the style in which I do the job. And again, they. I built good relationships here, and it's not about me. It's mm. about the team. That being said, there have been myriad controversies over the last four years, especially involving the president's behaviour and policies from this administration. As the policy broker for this administration, at any point, have you reconsidered your position here? Have you, have you ever considered resigning? The way I put it is, it's impossible to be 100% aligned with the 
precedent on everything. It's just not. We're, you know, no person in any administration is ever 100% aligned with the president. But this is so unlike any other yeah. administration. Well, I'll answer the question. I'm setting the framework. It's not like we're all clones of the president. Yeah. So everyone on a daily basis makes that decision, which is, am I still aligned enough with what he is trying to do to stay here? Some people decide along the way, no, and they leave. Some people stay. From my point of view, have there been times where I've disagreed with the president's decision? Of course. But I've never felt that I'm so disagreed with what he's doing that I've ever seriously considered leaving. Coming up, after four years working directly for Donald Trump, was it worth it? Look, I've lost friends from being here. I haven't lost my soul. Hoki Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. Almost a quarter of a million Americans have died from COVID-19. But in the last few months, we've seen the US president undermine public health advice and tease people for wearing masks. New Zealander Chris Liddell was responsible for establishing the White House's COVID-19 task force. And I asked him why the response to the pandemic has been so bad. Well, I might challenge your premise, but let's go on to the COVID-19. Okay. So uh, my role in that uh, was to set it up. So it was basically my suggestion that we set it up. That was part of the sort of initial policy process and that along with the, the original travel restrictions. So um, setting up the task force was something I suggested and came up with the population and then the president did it. And then to, to a large extent, we wanted to set up a separate uh, entity which would report directly to the president that would be outside the normal policy process. And it's a full-time role, or has been a full-time role. So my suggestion early on was we do that. Interestingly, I see the Biden uh, administration has announced exactly the same thing, that they'll set up a task force as well. So the basic concept, I think, was, was really good. Back to challenging my premise, though. Do, do you disagree that the response to the pandemic has been disastrous? That's one of those things where you we're in a difficult transition period at the moment, and we have parties which are trying to politicise everything, including the pandemic. So I'm just not going to comment. What I will say is I think there's going to be plenty of time for post-mortems next year, as indeed there will be. Yeah. One of the things I've been focusing on, um, and it comes back to what I'm actually trying to achieve here more generally, is what do we do for the next pandemic? And what do we do, in fact, for the next black swan event? Because what I think the interesting part of of this particular uh, crisis has been is a lack of institutional capability generally across the world. Uh, I mean, New Zealand is an exception, done a fantastic job, but most developed countries have struggled from an institutional point of view to deal with a crisis like this, a black swan event. And the ones who have dealt with it the best, other than perhaps New Zealand, are the ones that had a crisis like this five to ten years ago, so they set in place mechanisms to deal with something like this. That's sort of sufficient and interesting, but not necessary, uh, not, sorry, not sufficient going forward. So the big issue for me is how do you change institutional capability, and I'll come back to kind of the, my general work on that, to deal with a crisis like this going forward. One thing I think COVID has been a wake-up call to the world. Mm. that these types of pandemics are real. And to some extent, we're fortunate that COVID is actually relatively low on the fatality you know, um, scale. Something bigger and worse 
may indeed be on the horizon. So how do we as the US and how do other countries deal with that? And how do we deal with other issues that aren't in the mainstream of government? That is where I'm spending a lot of my right. time, not dealing with the politics of who did what. Let's talk about President Trump's popularity. 70 million people voted for him in the 2020 election, more than voted for him in 2016. Why is that? What are New Zealanders perhaps missing when they look at Donald Trump? Uh, a number of things. So firstly, obviously there's different people voted for him for different reasons. So you can't say there's a monolithic um, block of voters. Um, and that's perhaps one of the misconceptions is people think there is a monolithic block. There's a multiplicity of different people with a multiplicity of different reasons. The ones that I would point to, the biggest ones, uh, in terms of policy, uh, they like what he did, certainly pre-COVID in terms of jobs and the economy. And even in COVID, uh, the point we were talking about before, the economy has actually, in relatively speaking, done remarkably well, given how well it's shut down. A lot of people have died. Um, I'm talking about economically. Uh, so on the economy, people certainly feel strongly about that. Um, and on other policy, they like the fact that he's challenging China, which is a big issue we can come back to. And they like some of the other foreign policies, like Abraham Accords. So the different segments for different reasons. On personality, people like some of the things that other people dislike. They like his fearlessness, they like his uh, willingness to challenge the institutional thing, and they, they like the fact that he's out there big and bold. And then at a deeper level, um, I think there's a very strong anti-establishment move here, as there is in most countries. And I think that people see Donald Trump as, as hope. Uh, I mean, one of the problems with a meritocracy and the hollowing out of the middle class that we've had is that you, you, you're telling 50% of the population that they have no merit. And so there are really some systematic issues around inequality and around the middle class, which people see Donald Trump as a solution to. What do you consider your greatest achievements from your time in the White House? So it comes back to what I wanted to do here, uh, and, and I said I wanted to make a difference. So the two areas that interest me most are uh, how we uh, solve or try to solve inequality and how we reinvent government. So uh, if we start with the second one first, it's probably a little easier to talk to. Firstly, they're intergenerational issues. So uh, I would say I've achieved something, but I certainly wouldn't mm -hmm. profess that we've, we've solved either of those or made progress. But um, nowhere near enough. So in terms of reinventing government, spent a lot of time initially on um, changing the technology infrastructure of the government. So to come back to the point I made before, I think one of the biggest issues we have in the world at the moment is that governments are unable to deal with the rate of change of what's happening in the outside mm. world. And hence they're unable to deal with a crisis like COVID. Mm. So uh, I've spent a lot of time just getting the foundations of government reinvention by looking at the technology. We spend $100 billion a year in the, the government here. We have probably the worst technology in the world. It's 10 years behind the private sector. So a lot of my efforts, not exciting, not interesting, but absolutely fundamental. And we made a lot of progress on that. In terms of running the White House, I mentioned that before, I was interested to see how effective it was to run something which is a relatively small entity mm. but sits on top of a two million person organisation being the, the whole of the federal government. And so I was really interested in how you 
affect change inside the government. So one big area in terms of achievement is just making all of that work functionally. And again, that's a 10-year journey, but an interesting one. In terms of inequality, if I can give a reasonably long answer, okay. So I think that's one of the biggest issues we face as a world, and it's tearing the social fabric of this country and many others apart. And unless we solve that, then a lot of the other issues don't really matter. So what have I done there? Okay, that's a huge, monstrous issue. So the areas that I focused on there are, um, the thing that I think that you do when you try and change something like that is break it down, and, and middle-class jobs, to me, is has got to be one of the answers to how we solve that. Right. Unless you have somewhere for relatively poor people to gravitate to, and unless you have somewhere for those people then gravitate into the upper wealth, you, ha you have a hollow centre. And you have what we have at the moment here and in a number of countries where you're perpetuating mm. the rich get richer and the children of the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the children of the poor have nowhere to go. So I can talk as much as you want, but I'm trying to keep my thing. Have we made progress on that? Actually, interestingly, I think we've made some progress and I can talk about that as much as you like. Well, I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about inequality and where you see opportunities for progress in a moment. But I, I know there will just be so many people watching who cannot get past the character of the president himself. That they, they will look at Donald Trump and they will say, in terms of policies, this is a president who, in terms of behavior, this is a president who refused on several occasions to condemn white supremacists who is challenging the legitimacy of the election process. I just That central question, and, and then I'll move on, how do you reckon with that? Um, again, I, we're in this situation where I'm working here and, and just it's just not a question I really want to get to. But, but his I mean, behaviour, I mean, generally speaking, do, do you, are you how, how, how do you when, you, when you see those kind of comments? I look at the things that I do, do respect and like about him. I, and we'll go back to something I said before. I like the fact that he's fearless. I like the fact that he's status quo. Would he, I do the same things the way he did? No. Mm. But I think he's made demonstrable progress, and I think he has, he represents a core constituency of this country that desperately needs representing. And so, from my point of view, that's worth the bloody noses and the criticism that I get externally for being here. Has it cost you, personally, to work for Donald Trump? Yeah, yeah. Um, it certainly, uh, financially it has, but that's not your question. Uh, yeah, I, but the way I describe it, look, I've lost friends from being here. I haven't lost my soul. People no longer communicate with you because you work for the thing? Yeah, there's a mixture of people. Some people, to my face, don't want to talk to me. Some people just don't talk to me because, but it's, I, I never know. But yeah, sure, there's, there's, um, this is a polarizing time. And some people have decided that just because I work here, uh, I'm no longer a person they want to deal with. How does that affect you? Well, the same way it affects any human being. It doesn't make me feel very good. But again, I, look, I try and look at the bigger picture. I, I believe in what I'm doing. I'm proud of what I've done here. I've um, had an amazing opportunity, which I hopefully have done some good with. Um, and sure, uh, I would love people to be celebrating that. They're not, all of them, but that's, that's life. I mean, you, you, you take the opportunity, you have, you deal with it, and you deal with the 
good and the bad. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Yeah, I would have done what I'm doing for one day here. And I've had four years. Kōrero or mai, please get in touch. You can email us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz or flick us a tweet, we are at NZQ&A. After the break, Donald Trump's hardline immigration policy has been blamed for separating hundreds of children from their parents at the US southern border. I ask Chris Liddell about his role. Kia ora te whanau. welcome back to this Q&A special. America first, that has been President Donald Trump's message when it comes to trade. But as he campaigns to be the next Secretary General of the OECD, I ask Kiwi Chris Liddell what he thinks of free trade. Firstly, I believe in free trade. But where I probably differ from the free trade ideologues and where I'm aligned with the President on this is I think you try and free trade is a means, not an end. And I think you try and design the society you want, and you should have a free trade policy that matches that, not the other way around. So some people would say free trade is such a good thing, we should do, have as much of it as we possibly can, and then let society adapt to it. Mm. I don't believe that's the right setting. I believe fundamentally in free trade, it's helped people enormously. But to my point about hollowing out of the middle class, more here in the US than, say, New Zealand, mm. There is no doubt that the initial waves of free trade in the post-World War II period were the right things to do. It, it dragged the world out of the situation it had. In the last 20 or 30 years for the US, it's, that's not quite so obvious that that's the case. In fact, we've lost something like 5 million manufacturing jobs here. These are the core middle-class jobs that I talked about, and that has had um, terrible impacts on communities, on um, mobility and so forth. So mm -hmm. free trade, absolutely you should do it, but it should be a means to an end. And it's got to be part of a cocktail of, of um, policies. So overall, I believe in it, but I think the world is changing and there aren't as many countries who believe that it should be just free for everyone. Also, the US has certainly been the leader, but in the last 20 years, not many other countries, there's a lot of free riders out there. So, so have, you, have you changed your thinking on this? Because of course, I mean, you had very senior positions with the likes of General Motors and Microsoft, both of which have benefited enormously from globalization. Yeah, well, again, I believe in free trade. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not saying we should be protectionists. You're saying smart free trade. I'm saying smart free trade, and if there is a balance consumer and producer, with free trade to a large extent has been focused 100% on the consumer. Nothing wrong with that, to the extent of the producer. And maybe there is a, a, a more smart balance to look at there. I mean, I, did, I come back to it. Work is incredibly important. Having jobs is incredibly important. I think it's more important, the dignity of work is important, incredibly yeah. important. I think it's more important that people have meaningful jobs and they have cheaper flat screen TVs. So we need to reassess free trade and I think that's going on across the world. Now, the US is the most obvious, but show me a nation who's altruistic in their free trade, who does it other than for their own benefit. So this misconception that, that people are doing it for the good of others is not true. It's fundamentally important that free trade benefits everyone. And you know, if you want to take a step backwards, there's, there's um, 
Adam Smith wrote a companion to The Wealth of Nations called The Theory of Model Moral Sentiments, which under sets the ethical underpinning for free markets. And it's better to start there. What's your ethical approach and how, do you, how does that lead you to your free market approach? Then just assume that free markets and free trade is a good for its own right. But, but, but are countries interested in ethical approaches? Yeah, well, they should be. Are they? <laughs> they should be, Absol yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to have a nation state unless they represent their citizens. Yeah. That is what a nation state's primary role is to do. In order for it to represent its citizens properly, it needs to have an ethical underpinning and a moral underpinning to why it's trying to do it. You don't have policies for the sake of them. You have policies in order to achieve an end. I think and you know, every country should absolutely care about their ethical underpinnings. Otherwise, you're just you're letting people you know, do policy for the sake of it. So if you are in a position to influence countries trade policies, how do you go about encouraging an ethical underpinning? Well, we start with, that's the American first. We are, is that protectionism though? I mean, does, does, does protectionism mean, is that the ethical underpinning? Well, you, underpinning? You, you use what a pejorative label called protectionism. So when I look at something like the USMCA, which is the redone NAFTA, one of the core principles there was um, uh, country of origin, how much in particular autos had to be done in country of origin or in the region. So if you take the ethical underpinning that we want to have a robust automobile industry here in US and in North America, then you apply that to it, then you get rules of origin. So that's a taking a, a principle and applying it. Now do you call that protectionism? Okay, relative to Japan or Korea or Europe, Yes, it's, it's protective in the sense that it's going to force more productive capacity in the automobile industry into North America. I think that's a good thing. In a New Zealand context, should we be pursuing the free trade deals with Absolutely. the EU and the US? Absolutely, yeah. So the, again, the, the overall thrust of free trade should be towards free trade, should be to lowering barriers on a, on a reciprocal basis. So, uh, and New Zealand has benefited enormously from free trade and it is one of the countries that obviously is one of the freest uh, and most active and all the way back to when the UK joined the EEC, I think it was at the time, and New Zealand had to dramatically change its, its mix. So New Zealand absolutely should be um, pursuing free trade and it's been good. But just, again, free trade doesn't, isn't costless. So. Um, it, it, it should certainly um, open up opportunities for agriculture and dairy and so forth, the underpinnings of the New Zealand economy, but it, it's, it comes with some cost. What are the likelihood of New Zealand getting a strong advanced manufacturing sitting on top of that when it's going to do free trade with countries who are demonstrably lower cost and ahead of their curve? So. I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying you've really got to be smart and think about it. So if New Zealand wants to be the farm for the world, absolutely it should continue to pursue it. If it wants to actually develop its own advanced processing and manufacturing on top of it, then it probably needs to think of it. But again, I've been out of New Zealand for 20 years, so I shouldn't talk is too authoritatively about that. Is, is the WTO relevant? Uh, increasingly less so. So uh, between 1947 when GATT was set up and 
four when WTO is that did I think eight or nine rounds, uh, which lowered tariffs from 20% to 5% across the board. Um, since 95, when WTO was set up, I don't think they've done any substantive mm. negotiations. So it's relevant because it's a it's a forum. Um, but it's increasingly irrelevant because it's becoming more of a mm. litigation venue. So um, it's, it's, and we can talk about international organisations at some stage if you want to, but it's like a lot of international organisations, it's drifted in focus and it's become more of a forum for discussion than a real action. Let's talk about another feature of globalisation and that is immigration and I will start with uh, a Donald Trump policy. It was 2018 when the White House introduced an immigration policy that saw children separated from their parents on the southern border of the United States. Now, there were news reports shortly thereafter that alleged that you and a group of senior White House officials met in the Situation Room here in the West Wing and held a vote on that policy. Is that true? No. So, uh, anyone... I, I saw the, the article in New Zealand which relied on an article here, which relied on another article, which relied on an anonymous source. I don't think that's the way you should do uh, yeah, reporting, but to your point, what was reported in that article, which I read, was there was a vote by hands in the room and a, a wave of hands went up. I've been to probably a thousand meetings here, hundreds of principals meetings. We have never had a vote by a show of hands. We've never had a vote. This isn't a democracy. <laughs> we don't run our own little democracy inside mm. here. Um, so whoever wrote that was relying on someone who certainly wasn't in the room and doesn't actually understand the way we run it. Had we, had there been a meeting like that, had there been a vote, I would certainly have voted against child separation. I think it was a terrible policy. And in fact, my office ran a, a um, policy process to come up with an executive order which clarified shortly thereafterwards that child separation shouldn't be part of our policy. So, uh, you know, it, the damage is done. People report it. I think they reported that I was invited to the meeting, but whatever. I mean, that's, I that's mean, part of the... Well, yeah. I, I mean, there, there are hundreds of kids who can't be reunited with their parents, so people will look at that policy and say it has been hugely damaging. Yeah. Coming up, should Jacinda Ardern publicly back Chris Liddell to be the next leader of the OECD? New Zealand really wants to have a disproportionate impact and I think it should try and box above its, its weight class internationally, diplomatically. If it really wants to do that, it has to play to win. Hoki mai e welcome back to Q&A. Immigration will have a significant impact on countries' economic recovery from COVID-19. Here in the United States, Chris Liddell told me immigration is an especially contentious issue. You've got to split it firstly between legal immigration and illegal immigration, and those two are conflated quite a lot. So let's talk about legal immigration first, because that's mm. an easier topic and get to the heart of one of illegal. So, in terms of legal immigration, uh, we have been trying to reform the legal immigration system here to change it to something that looks like a country called New Zealand. So New Zealand has a very strong merit-based immigration system. About 80% of the, um, uh, the immigrants who come into New Zealand are, are through a merit system where you, you, mm. you get points allocated depending on your skills and so forth. Uh, we think that's a very good system. Here in the US it's about 20%. 
So we actually came up, designed a system around New Zealand, Australia and Canada to try and reform the legal immigration system and make it more merit. Come back to what I said, ethical underpinnings, what are you trying to do? Your immigration system is one of your principal areas where you can you know, build the country's characteristics. Mm. So obviously you should think seriously, and merit doesn't mean necessarily just professional merit, it can mean all sorts of different things in terms of characteristics and diversity. So on the legal immigration system, We've been doing a lot of work on that, and that's probably one of the areas where I'm most optimistic, regardless of what the final election result is, that we're going to see change in the future. Illegal immigration is the harder one, and, and comes to your question. So there's somewhere between 20 and 30 million illegal immigrants in the US. So to put that in New Zealand context, somewhere between three and 400,000. Um, if you had three or 400,000 illegal immigrants in New Zealand, you'd probably be having a different conversation than the one we're having. So how we deal with illegal immigration in this country is incredibly important. There's close to 10% of the population here is here illegally, some through the southern border, but more generally. So it's an incredibly difficult issue. It's obviously a divisive issue. It's a political issue. I, again, don't want to go into the nuts and bolts of who said what, because in the next period of time that's going to continue to be. But solving that is incredibly important and different administrations, including this one and Obama-Biden administration beforehand and the Bush before that, have tried to do something. They've all tried different things and none of them have worked. What about New Zealand? We've seen net migration hit 60 or 70,000 over the last few years. Some critics have said that um, said that immigration has artificially inflated New Zealand's GDP growth over the last few years and we are seeing all the downstream effects, the likes of the housing shortage at the moment. How should New Zealand approach its immigration settings after COVID-19? Okay, the first thing I'll say is be careful of someone who lives a few thousand miles away from New Zealand telling New Zealand what they should do, even if he is a New Zealander. Uh, I think it's one of the most significant issues New Zealand should really be conscious of. And it, again, it comes to what's the sort of society that New Zealand's trying to create over the next generation. In my lifetime, uh, New Zealand's grown in population almost doubled from just under 3 million to over 5 million. That's create, created being lots of good things about that, lots of credibly, it's a much more diverse, interesting place. But it's also... Um, challenging infrastructure, it's leading to, I think, inequality around house prices as migrants come in and, and buy it. So it's causing lots of structural and societal issues. I'm not saying it's bad, it's like a free trade agreement. Don't think just because I, mm. I, I challenge it means I want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But being very conscious about, firstly, the number of people that New Zealand lets in and the characteristics of the people that it lets in. I think it's incredibly important. That's one of the most fundamental decisions that a government can make. And the idea of just opening it up the country, whoever comes in, comes in, is dumb policy. Why do you want to be the head of the OECD? Uh, so I think international, I, I think there's a real crisis of confidence in the public and institutions generally. I talked about that a little bit. One of the reasons why I want to come in here was to see whether I could be part of an institutional reinvention, in this case the, the US government. I think the same applies to international organisations. So most have drifted in their relevance over the last 20 years. Mm. Most major in international organisations were set up um, in the late 40s, post Second World War, and did amazing things. Most thereafter would have drifted. 
So the first question I ask, which I think I asked you the other day when we caught up, is how many international organisations are there in the world? It's 38,000. Now, okay, admittedly a lot of them are small, but a lot of them aren't small. All of them tend to cover each other's ground to a large extent. I, I get a major report from an international organisation pretty much every day, or a major launch. How many of them I read? Virtually none, because they're all saying essentially the same thing. So international organisations generally need to be rethought. And I talk about good policy as being the combination of aspiration and action. So aspiration without action is just hollow words. No aspiration and lots of action is just incrementalism and randomness. You need aspiration and you need action. Most international organisations are aspiration, echo chambers, talk fests, without a lot of action. I think the OECD, to come back to your original question, can actually be one of the most influential, if not the most influential, international organisation in the next decade. But how do you make it influential? Um, well, firstly, you look at the preconditions. So uh, it, it has um, a relatively small constituency, uh, 37 countries, but they represent 62% of the world. And importantly, China is not a member. So it, it is a forum where you can actually get things done and things done that are important. Because China is not a member. Because China is not a member. I think that's a critical element of it. I'm being quite open about that. Uh, but you also have countries who are relatively aligned culturally and, and values set, obviously some differences, but a, a relatively good group of people with an incredible amount of, of economic and other power. Um, so how do you make it more effective? Um, first you have, need to have a theory of change and that I think about institutional things. You, you have to make it more than just a, a nice convention centre where people go. There's 300 committees on the OECD. Maybe you don't need all 300. Maybe you need to focus on two or three big issues. What are the biggest issues fo facing the world in the next few years? How do you get commonality around common challenges and, and shared challenges? So running the organisation well is incredibly important and that's about setting priorities. It's just good governance, good management's what I do. People will be looking at you though and saying, this is a senior Donald Trump official, and of course this is an, an administration that has consistently criticised, it sometimes undermined international organisations, the like of the World Health Organisation and the United Nations. What's your response to that criticism? 100%, yeah. The president wants international organisations to be to justify themselves, and I 100% support them on this. So if they can't take that, if they can't take, you need to justify your existence, then I don't want to run it. So let's be clear, I'm, the president's not against international organisations, I'm certainly not against them. He's against ones which have lost their focus and lost their way. And New Zealand should care about this. New Zealand you know, bears its share of the cost. Now international organisations for New Zealand are important because it's a, it's a forum where a small country can get a disproportionate amount of influence. So it, it should back the ones that it is. But just going along and doing the same old, same old is not the right answer for New Zealand as well. And yeah, the OECD budget is about uh, $500 million. New Zealand bears some, some part of that. So just having international organisations for the sake of it so you can you know, have uh, a discussion forum is not a particularly good use of New Zealand's resources or time. Why won't the New Zealand government publicly support you? <laughs> you 
you might have to ask them on that. Um, the, the timing was um, obviously unfortunate um, in that there was the New Zealand election and then our election. So I think um, the way I describe it is uh, these international organisations' processes are a combination of ability and politics. On ability, I would put myself up against anyone. On politics, it's difficult. It's challenging. And uh, obviously, you've talked about the president's, you know, and, and my association with the president. So that, that makes it difficult for a New Zealand perspective, perhaps. But the thing I'd say is, from a New Zealand perspective, is these opportunities actually don't come along very often. Now, New Zealand can decide to, to um, back me or not. And by the way, I don't think New Zealand should back me just because I'm a New Zealander. They should certainly look at me more interestingly, but they shouldn't do it just because I'm a New Zealander. But if New Zealand really wants to have a disproportionate impact, and I think it should try and box above its, its weight class internationally, mm. diplomatically. If it really wants to do that, it has to play to win. And the, the easiest example I can say is uh, the last major one was Helen Clark going for the UN. Now, Helen Clark was a stronger candidate than me. I think she would have been a fabulous head of the United Nations. On ability, she was like, would have been one of the great United Nations Secretary Generals. On politics, she didn't win. And so you've got to be in to win these. And uh, we'll see what happens with this. But if New Zealand wants to win any of these, they're probably going to have to be more proactive than they have been. After the break, with Donald Trump still refusing to concede the election, what does transition manager Chris Liddell think will happen next? Maureen Etefano, welcome back to Q&A. Chris Liddell says environmental issues are one of his driving passions and he sees climate change as one of the biggest problems facing the world. And yet he worked for a White House administration that pulled out of the Paris Accord and has promoted the use of coal. I asked him how he squares that circle. I talked about aspiration and action before. There is nowhere where aspiration and action have a lower ratio than in climate. So I think the aspiration that generally accepted aspiration of trying to keep uh, temperatures to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels is the right one. So that's aspiration. Here's the commitments under the Paris Accord, the nationally determined commitments. Here's the pol domestic policies of the countries who have made those commitments. And here's the actions that are going on. So to give you some you know, sense of it, in the last 25 years, uh, emissions have gone up 50 to 60% globally, and we're talking about halving them over the next decade. We, there is no way we are on track to meeting the commitments, let alone the target. So uh, I think the problem that we have is not the aspiration, and it's not necessarily, it's, it's the lack of commitment and the lack of domestic policies. Because again, the Paris Accord has some benefits, yeah. but it has some real weaknesses. It's voluntary, and you actually have to ensconce it in domestic policy. And I see very few countries that are doing that well, including New Zealand, dare I say, if I could be critical of New Zealand. Now, New Zealand makes a good case, and I think the Zero Carbon Act was a really good piece of legislation, but it doesn't actually have any teeth. It's an aspiration, 
piece of legislation. So how do you drive it then? If, if you're in a position of global leadership, head of the OECD, how do you go about tackling a challenge like that? Well, let me talk about what I've done here, and then that'll lead to that. So I've championed things which I consider to be bipartisan I can get through. I championed the Trillion Trees initiative, which the President signed up to for Davos, which I think is one area. Uh, I've run clean energy summits, and I, I've actually brought people together. Um, but more importantly, when you think about what governments can do, they can spend money, they can regulate, or they can convene. I've done lots of convening and bringing people together. I've, and, and on the dollar side, I think that's probably the biggest thing that a government can do, this government can do, and I'll come on to the OECD. So the only way we're going to solve this problem is innovating our way out of it. There is no way we are going to regulate our way out of it, although regulations have got to be part of it. But to try and bend that curve from a gradually increasing emissions to a decreasing, and by the way, the, the generally accepted challenges we have to halve them in the next decade, so we're talking about not only flattening but decreasing, is through innovation. So I look at something like the uh, drawdown concept, which has 80 initiatives. There's no silver bullet, but every one of them has an innovation uh, plan against it. And the US government spends $150 billion a year on R&D, relatively little of that goes into those areas. So the single biggest thing we can do and collectively do inside the OECD is come up with a set of R&D principles which are going to have to be much, much smarter than they have in the past. How do you commercialise R&D, how do you work with the private sector and how do you work across countries to maximise the value of the money that we spend to get a vastly different result than we have. And you touched on this before, this, this leads from some of our previous subjects, the likes of free trade and immigration. Inequality is a central part of your campaign for the OECD. Yep. What would you prioritise? How do you go about reversing the trends for inequality in some of our biggest economies? Okay, so I think, uh, again, I come back to middle class jobs. And by middle class jobs, I don't necessarily mean the jobs of 50 years ago, although I think things like advanced manufacturing will be important. But things like um, healthcare technologists, creative, there's lots of really interesting jobs of the future. To get those jobs of the future, the OECD countries need to win the industries of the future race, and why it's important that China is not part of the OECD. So every country in the OECD should have an incredibly strong innovation platform that leads to them winning in some way in the critical industries like artificial intelligence, 5G, synthetic biology, quantum computing, uh, Internet of Things. All of those core sort of technology concepts OECD countries need to win in. Not just win in their own right, but win in the application of those to other jobs, because that's the biggest change that's happened in the last 20 years, is we're talking about a fundamental change in every job, not just technology jobs. So that's sort of big policy plank number one. How do OECD countries win in that? And that is an existential battle with China. And I think it's absolutely critical that OECD countries, US, New Zealand and others, set those standards, set the ethical principles for things like artificial intelligence and win in those industries. Then they actually need to train people to actually have those jobs. So there's no point in having great GDP growth unless you actually have, everyone has the opportunity to benefit in that. And at the moment, there is a disproportionate share of the wealth of the benefit of the industries of the future going to the highly educated. So we need 
fundamentally different policies around workforce training. That's the core, because you're not going to solve the education issue in the next year or two. But workforce training, every country needs to have an incredibly strong workforce training principle and using um, concepts which we don't have at the moment. So engaging the private sector, who are the, the biggest employer, and fundamentally rethinking about it. So the days of you go and get an education and then you get a job and then you never get any more education, those are gone. So we need to retrain people for these jobs and we need to rethink the education system we have. That's an incredibly difficult issue. But one thing that I feel very strongly about is, is vocational training. So here in the US, to some extent in New Zealand perhaps, we've convinced people that in order to succeed, you need to have a four-year degree. So we're producing people with four-year degrees here. Half of them don't succeed. They come up with a lot of debt. So reinventing community colleges, reinventing vocational training, bringing vocational training back into high schools as well has got to be a critical part of it. Because a lot of these jobs are enabled by technology, but they need different skills to the ones that we've had in the past. So I covered a lot of ground, but if you're going to make any changes at all, it's in those areas. Would a Joe Biden administration support your application? It'd be interesting. I, I, I don't know. I haven't talked with them about it. Uh, I think uh, the Senate would probably do it, so not that they have a vote in it. Um, the Biden administration, they'll, if they can come along, I doubt if it's the highest priority that they're, they're going to consider in terms of it, quite possibly. I know these are these are sensitive times. You are handling a transition either to a second term uh, Trump presidency or a Biden presidency. What is the mood here at the moment? Uh, well, we, we, we're still in um, contestable times, so it's it's you know there's still a lot going on on that. Um, but uh, it's fine. It's fine. You know, the, the sun gets up each day. We come here. Uh, I, I'm actually, you know, I'm enjoying this time. I, I talked about it. I, I want to be here. I want to be part of this. I want to be a player, not a spectator. So uh, regardless of what happens in the next 72 days, to be part of that experience, I think that's a wonderful opportunity. So for me, I'm, 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 so I'm buoyant because, uh, you know, the result may go against us, but um, uh, I'm enjoying it. How is it? How do you think it's going to end? I, I, that one I'm not going to comment on. Finally, then, you have had a dazzling career and extraordinary access to the most powerful office in the world. After four years in the West Wing, how do you hope New Zealanders see you? I, look, I hope they would have pride that I'm here. You know, and obviously that's going to be mixed because of, of the general thing. But it's a very unique set of circumstances that allowed a New Zealander to be sitting here. Other New Zealanders, you, you saw Peter Watson, I believe, the other day. Other New Zealanders have worked in the White House generally. No one's ever been able to have an office here in the West Wing uh, and the sort of access to the president that I have. Um, a lot of that is because of my upbringing in New Zealand. A lot of that is because of the education I had. A lot of that is because of the middle class opportunities that I had. A lot of that is because the first 40 years of my life were in New Zealand. So hopefully they'll say, wow, okay, well if he did it, I might be able to do it. Maybe for a different administration, but the fact that we've been able to actually uh, have someone from this country here is because of what I got from New Zealand. So hopefully they get some pride in that.
That is Kiwi Chris Liddell speaking to me in the Roosevelt Room in the West Wing of the White House. Until January, he will be managing the transition to the next White House administration. That's our show for today. Nā mihi kia koto i o koto karere. Thank you very much for your messages and contributions. Thanks as always to the wonderful Q&A team. Next week, I will be in managed isolation, but the show will be back, same time, same place. We'll see you at nine o'clock. Until then, marae is up next. Kia pai te rā nei. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.